Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the British Wrestling Experience right here on postwrestling.com and I'm your host Martin Bushby. Sadly no Benno with me this month, he's taking a well-earned rest after uh, covering so much Wrestlemania for Grapple last week, um, but it's going to be a, a show of two halves as the first half I'll be looking into the uh, all-party parliamentary group on wrestling and having a few guests to discuss the report that was released last week and then also, I'll be discussing all the European involvement in WrestleMania with Will Cooling, and then we'll also be talking Will Ospreay in New Japan and him obviously winning the IWGP heavyweight title. So without further ado, I'll uh, take it over to my first guest. Right, we're back on the show, and joining me now is the Labour MP for Pontypridd in Wales and one of the chairs of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Wrestling, Alex Davies-Jones. Alex, thank you for joining us this week. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. So um, the report on British wrestling was published uh, last week and it's obviously attracted a lot of attention from uh, a variety of different media outlets. But um, I suppose before we get into it, uh, for our listeners who you know may be unaware, um, what actually is an all-party parliamentary group um, or APBG for short? Yeah, of course. So the all-party parliamentary group for wrestling is... Basically what it says on the tin, we're a group of MPs and parliamentarians who have come together cross-party, representing all all political parties here in Westminster, um, and we've come together with our shared love of British wrestling. And we came together to see how we could best support British wrestling, try and help with our positions here in Westminster in terms of um, helping the industry get through both the COVID pandemic and also some of the serious issues that were systemic amongst the culture of the industry. But then also to try and promote British wrestling, because the past sort of few years, we've seen this huge resurgence in British wrestling. Um, it's fantastic to see we've got British champions, you know, representing us around the world in the industry. And um, really to showcase how amazing the industry is in terms of its economic impact, cultural impact, um, and something that we should all be overwhelmingly proud of. And if we can fly the flag for the industry here in Westminster, then that's what we want to do. Excellent. Because um, the report is is fairly long, isn't it? And there's obviously no way we could go through it in depth. But um, I just wanted to look at some of the main points, I suppose, um, just to round it up. So what were the main aims of this report when you first set out to do it? Of course, yeah, it's, it's over 100 pages long, the report, and it was um, based off the back of something that we really wanted to do to look into the current situation within British wrestling. You know, there's been so many um, issues being raised with us since we set up the group, both in terms of the speaking out movement, um, in terms of some concerns wrestlers had of health and safety, and then also trying to support the industry going through COVID and trying to boost a recovery post that as well. So we we did a big call for evidence. We had over 80 submissions to that, which was incredible. Everything from fans to wrestlers to promotions to training schools to academics to healthcare professionals submitted evidence on a wide range of issues. And we wanted it to be all encompassing. And this really is the start of a conversation for us in terms of where we go next and um, hoping that it'll spark the conversations. And it's been great that it's been so positively received. And we've been very clear as MPs and um, supporters of the group in that this report isn't the end for us. This is absolutely the beginning. And we are hoping that it's going to start these conversations and start um, looking at some of the recommendations that we've got within the report to how best we can move forward um, and yeah, it's just starting to spiral and it's fantastic. And I'm really excited about where, where this takes us next. 
Um, obviously, you uh, are a wrestling fan, but in doing this report, what were some of the main things that sort of stood out for you as problems in British wrestling? I mean, comparing it with other sports and entertainments, did it sort of seem like like the Wild West in terms of like comparing it to other things that are out there? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And whenever um, I mention wrestling in Parliament or to other people or to the media and journalists and those who aren't really aware of the situation and the unique circumstances that wrestling finds itself in, they're really shocked to find out how little regulation, well, zero regulation there is and how zero accountability and oversight there is on the industry. And sadly, that has allowed some really um, systemic problems to persist for so long in terms of um, unregulated behaviour, unacceptable behaviour and, uh, you know, accounts of bullying. And when we took some of the evidence sessions as part of the report from wrestlers and from fans and from people who'd been directly involved in wrestling, it was truly shocking and appalling. And to hear what they'd been through, not just in terms of sexual abuse allegations, but just how they were treated in terms of um, health and safety and um, payment for taking part in shows and that such little regard for their welfare was was truly appalling to hear. And, and I hope that some of the recommendations that we've put forward in the report are able to, to make a start in, in fixing some of these issues because it's desperately needed. Yeah, because obviously a lot of fans were left horrified last year after uh, speaking out and obviously the countless stories of uh, alleged abuse in wrestling. Um, and it seems now a lot of fans have either given up on wrestling or are quite reticent to trust British wrestling promotions again. So, I mean, what are some of the key recommendations sort of like tackle speaking out and to try and solve some of this, you know, this huge issue uh, apparently in British wrestling? Yeah, of course. And and fans were quite right to be horrified at these at these allegations and at the situation that British wrestling found itself in. And it was quite right that they voted with their feet and said, um, unless change is made, change needs to happen, enough is enough, then we're not supporting British wrestling anymore. And um for me as a as a wrestling fan, it it was um it needs to be a turning point and a and a movement in the industry that I love. And one of the recommendations that we've put forward in the report is um that these victims need a voice and they need to be listened to. It's all right them speaking out, but if nobody's actually listening to what they're saying, then they're just hitting a brick wall. So we were very, very firm in our report that these victims and their experiences need to be given a platform and they need to be listened to. And that information then needs to trickle down into training schools and there needs to be a code of conduct and a fan code of conduct. There needs to be natural justice as well. We were very firm on that. And if anybody is um, accused of um, serious allegations or unacceptable behaviour, then it it absolutely needs to be investigated by the the appropriate authorities, whether that's the police or or social services or whoever's involved. But ultimately, this needs to be some sort of regulation, which is why our recommendations on classifying um, the industry in the way that we have done. And for those listeners who haven't read the report or seen some of the recommendations, what we're proposing is that training schools are classified as a sport and then um, promotions and shows are actually classed as theatre and performance and come under the arts umbrella. And um, 
just to break it down for you, there's a whole host of reasons why we've come to these recommendations and why the evidence has shown that these are the classifications that are needed. But ultimately, it's so that when training schools are classified as a sport, anybody responsible for holding a position of trust, such as a training coach or um, anybody involved in the training schools, has to come under that safeguarding element. They need those enhanced TBS checks. They need to have that insurance in place. They, they will be protected under the law in terms of being unable to have an inappropriate relationship with anybody under the age of 18 because they hold a position of trust. And they'll also be accountable to um, the rel- rel- regulatory bodies, such as Sports England or the devolved equivalents across the UK. And that is absolutely important for protecting young people and vulnerable adults in the r- British wrestling scene. Yeah, because obviously abuse is a big issue, not just for wrestling, but we've seen it in a lot of other sports, haven't we? Because obviously the report did recommend that the law be amended to make sports coaches a, a position of trust. Um, I mean, in terms of that, is that um, is that something that is happening in terms of um, sort of like sports institutions around the country? Yes, it is. And you're quite right to say that wrestling isn't alone isn't alone in this. You know, we've seen unacceptable unacceptable behaviour within British gymnastics, British cycling, um, the jockey club. All of these um sporting institutions um have serious issues they need addressing, whether that's um, misogyny or um, bullying and harassment, and these need to be addressed. And the new bill that's making its way through Parliament, the police crime courts and sentencing bill, um does have the option of having um, sports coaches included in that position of trust so that any um, inappropriate relationship with um, an adult aged 18 and children, 18 and below, um, is illegal. And sadly, because wrestling isn't classed as a sport, that, that definition isn't there at the moment, they would there is a risk that wrestling coaches and training schools could fall through the gap and be exempt in this loophole. So what we're trying to do as MPs within the all-party group is close that loophole and include wrestling in that definition so that there is no no chance of it falling through the gap and no risk of anybody being excluded from um, legal responsibility when it comes to being in a position of trust with children. Because it was also um, health and safety, wasn't it? It was one of the big issues that the report noted. I mean, in terms of training schools, not in the same levels as the sort of like um, rules and regulations that you might see in other sports, such as sort of boxing and, and judo, maybe. Yeah, it was. Yes, it wasn't just all about um, risk of abuse and, and bullying and harassment. Health and safety was a major factor. And some of the evidence that we had showed that um Necessary insurance wasn't in place to protect people when they were in training schools. Concussion protocols weren't being um, adopted and guidelines weren't being followed. And if you look at other sports, such as, like you said, boxing, judo or football, if anybody there wanted to become a coach in these sports, they would need to complete the necessary safeguarding courses. They would need to complete the necessary first aid training. They would need to know how to how to look after children within their care. But wrestling, because it hasn't got that clear definition, it completely is excluded from all of that requirements for for, um, establishing a coaching role or a training role. And what we've tried to do and recommend is that there should be no no risk of that happening and wrestling shouldn't fall through the gaps there. So by including it in the definition of sport, it, it it 
makes coaches accountable and it makes sure that anybody who wants to train and become a wrestler one day um, is safe to do so. And I want my children to be able to say that they want to, you know, try wrestling one day. And I want to feel reassured and safe that when I send them to a training school, everything there is going to be above board and follow to the letter of the law and the guidelines and the health and safety will be in place to protect them. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, I mean, towards the end of the report, you have put a pledge together, haven't you, that, um, you know, you're asking sort of wrestling promotions and schools um, to sign up to. What's um, actually in the pledge and um, uh, what are you going to be expecting from these schools and promotions in terms of that? Yeah, of course. So uh, the wrestling pledge, we, we thought, what can we do as an all-party group in terms of actual practical work here as a first step to get promotions, fans, training schools on board with us? And we thought, let's get a pledge together. Let's get, oh, sorry, I'm in Parliament right now and that bell is, uh, that the uh, the chamber is sitting, so you're getting it uh, first time to you. <laughs> that's, that's fine. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, so the pledge is um, our way of saying that what can, what can people sign up to? And fans really wanted um, to, to sign up to this as well. So it's, you know, it's basic things like... Um, holding people to account, not being inappropriate with wrestlers. If you're a fan at merchandise stores or at meet and greet events, bullying behavior online was something that came out time and time again. And this um, implication of trial by social media. And we wanted fans to be able to, you know, sign up to a code of conduct that said this was completely unacceptable, but also for good business practice as well for some of our um, promotions. So ensuring that they have a license and, keeping records of their income and expenditure, um, maintaining appropriate GDPR information, all things that you would expect any any responsible business and any responsible training school to have, um, we've tried to include in this pledge and make it as wide-ranging as possible. Because until we can get a governing body or a regulatory board in place, then this is the, this is the bare minimum that we expect from our British wrestling industry. Yeah, because I suppose some people might say, you know, obviously this is just a recommendation. What's stop promotions and schools just carrying on regardless and, in, and ignoring all this stuff that's been that's been laid out? Yeah, it is. It is just a recommendation. But I think why why wouldn't you sign up to this if you are committed to improving the British wrestling industry and to reassuring your fans that you are doing the right thing and you've recognised that there are serious issues within the industry? Why wouldn't you sign this pledge? And I think that would be my question to those who are refusing to engage with it and refusing to do the right thing. And then they are the they are the companies or the training schools that we need to be investigating and asking more of. And earlier we talked about fans, you know, voting with their feet and saying that they weren't going to support support wrestlers or promotions who um, weren't going to join us in creating the British wrestling industry that we know and deserve we should have. And they need to hold their wrestlers and promotions accountable and training schools accountable and say, why have you not signed up to this pledge? And and they are the questions that need to be asked. So you mentioned at the start, didn't you, about sort of like you, you did this call out for information and, you know, to help you with your research. And, you know, you had a variety of uh, different people involved in the industry and people outside the industry. I mean, obviously, WWE, obviously the market leader and the biggest promotion in the world, and they have a British army in NXT UK and obviously have an interest in other British promotions. Um, did you reach out to them or, or were they forthcoming in information for this report? We did. We did reach out to them and we have had some initial engagement with them. And of course, as you state, you know, they are the big elephant in the room in this. They are the biggest name in the game and they are 
trying to make waves in Britain and, you know, they've got their performance centre here, which is great. And um, it's it's a big sign and a big coup for British wrestling that they're taking Britain and British wrestlers seriously. And and it, it's, they didn't submit evidence, but they are engaged with us and they are keen to work with us to see how best we can support the British wrestling industry. We've got some first meetings lined up with them and this inquiry is just the start and if we can engage with them and get them on board with what we're trying to do and to boost the industry especially now post-covid when the industry we know is going to need as much support as possible then that's a big win for us and yeah it's um it's the start of what i hope will be a positive and um supportive relationship yeah, because obviously you mentioned uh, earlier about maybe, you know, um, sort of like a British, a British wrestling governing body. And the thing that really shook me most, and, you know, it's right at the start of the report where it, you know, where it notes that, you know, we listen to blame finger pointing unhappiness in some cases, bravado. I mean, obviously, um, it doesn't take a, a genius to see that, you know, British wrestling's quite fractured. I mean, do you think we'd ever see something like a governing body for British wrestling, considering it take you know, a lot of people coming together and following it to make it happen. I would love to see a governing body for British wrestling. And ultimately, the the evidence that we had into the inquiry and the support from within the industry is overwhelmingly supportive of that idea as well. But ultimately, it needs to come from within the British wrestling industry. And and I and, and my fellow APPG members have been very clear that we are there to support the industry in, in whatever they decide to do in terms of setting up um, this governing body and one of the recommendations within the report is that one is established now the next question for us is what does that look like and potentially we could have another sub inquiry in terms of okay we've now established that British wrestling needs a governing body for all the reasons that we've outlined in the report such as somebody um, who complaints can be made to somebody who is a voice for the industry at, um, at government level and uh, who can coordinate the industry and what does that look like? You know, is there a model already in place in terms of some of the other sports or industries that we could use to establish one and set one up, such as um, MMA or boxing or um, judo or martial arts? Um, or does this need to be uh, start from scratch operational box because wrestling is such a unique industry? Now, I'm I'm keen to explore where we go next with this idea and if we can bring the British wrestling industry with us as well, then that's what we need to do because this does need to be industry led, but I'd be really keen in the exploration of what a governing body would look like and how we would go in terms of setting one up. Yeah. I'm sure uh, a lot of people will be very interested to see how, how something like that come together, but um, obviously the report doesn't claim to have a magic wand, does it? You know, it's not going to solve all the problems and these are just recommendations. So I suppose, you know, um, to wrap up sort of moving on and the responses you've had so far, uh, what can be done sort of like moving forward past, uh, past the report now? Yeah, we don't have a magic wand and we're doing this out of a complete passion project and the love of the industry. Um, so next steps are actually quite exciting. We've got some meetings lined up with government ministers to discuss our recommendations within the report. We've got some further meetings, as I said, with WWE lined up. Um, and also with the industry itself. So we want to meet with wrestling schools now to discuss how we can best implement these recommendations. We've got some um, amendments to the new legislation that's coming through in terms of ensuring that wrestling is included so that it doesn't slip through the gaps, like I mentioned earlier. And then 
next steps on what does a governing body look like? Um, how can we get concussion protocols rolled out um, across the industry? There's so many avenues to explore and this is just the beginning. And I'm really keen to maybe come back to you in a couple of months time to say this is the latest. This is how we've been working on some of the recommendations to improve the industry. But it's an exciting time for us, especially as now, like I said, we open up post-COVID and we can hopefully get shows back up and running and get fans back in supporting promotions. Yeah, because people probably should definitely go out and, um, you know, check out the report. It is available on your website, isn't it? AlexDavisJones.com. And you know, obviously just Google APPG Wrestling and it'll come up there. But any final sort of light thoughts or anything you wanted to mention before uh, before we head out of here? All I would mention is that we're really keen to engage with fans within the industry. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about the report today. And if anybody does have feedback for us, please get in touch with us on Twitter or via our email address. We're keen to hear what you think about the report. And and if anybody wants to get involved as well, we're always looking for willing volunteers to help improve the industry that we love. And a huge thanks to Alex there for taking the time to speak with us there. And uh, moving on, joining me now, I have two more guests to talk about the APPG report on wrestling. And firstly is Will Cooling from the Pro Wrestling Torch. Will, thanks for joining me this month. Always a pleasure, Martin, to be here, be on here with you. And uh, next up is one of the UK's leading lawyers in uh, sexual abuse litigation. He's He's been involved with uh, some very high-profile cases over here in the UK, including uh, Jimmy Samuel and the abuse scandal in Jersey. I'd like to welcome Alan Collins. Alan, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, pleasure and a privilege to be on. So thank you, Martin, for inviting me and pleased to meet you too, Will. And uh, Alan, sort of like uh, just going in before we get into the report itself, were you were you a fan of wrestling? Any experience uh, watching wrestling uh, prior to reading this report? I'm glad you didn't ask me whether I'm a wrestler because the answer would be no. <laughs> but um, um, no, you know, wrestling was sort of staple diet when I was growing up. So I'm going to be sort of giving away um, my age profile here. But in the 70s, you know, um, um wrestling was on in the afternoons um you know watched either deliberately or as a prelude to the football results you know my dad was um um keen footballer and you know football pools and all that kind of thing so he wanted the results every um saturday afternoon for his coupon and um yeah so um the television we turned on and you know i've just got these vivid memories of watching wrestling in black and white with giant haystacks and big daddy and so on and being you know you know you know watching you know that you know that you know the watching them wrestle you know it was very exciting you know and it was very interesting and exciting and you know the more noise there was and the more um you know violence so to speak um you know the more interesting it got so yes i've got these very fond and vivid memories of watching wrestling in black and white we should probably just for the benefit of the americans and any younger listeners we should explain what the football pools was because literally back in the you know 60s 70s 80s even in the early 90s no national lottery gambling was quite restricted outside the horse racing business and so the best way to do gambling on football was the pools, which was literally a game where you picked the games that ended in a score draw. And it was huge, you know, right up until I, I remember it kind of went out, went started to slide after National Lottery was introduced in the mid-90s. But that was like the biggest gambling in the country outside horse racing. Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, 
but my father, you know, oh, you know, no, he was, you know, he needed those results on a Saturday afternoon, come what may, regardless, you know. And um, yeah, he was like tens of thousands of people up and down the land, you know, um, you know, football pools, you know, it was big business. It was a big thing. Yeah, it certainly was. And um, I know a lot of uh, British wrestling fans will have sort of like memories of that world of sport era, especially if you go out and talk to a lot of people, they do talk about the world of sport era of wrestling. But I suppose moving beyond that, um, you know, before we get into the report itself, um, Alan, obviously one of your main areas of expertise is with abuse in sports. Were you, amaz- were you made aware last year of all the abuses happening in British wrestling? Obviously, we had the speaking out movement and people reading all these horrifying stories uh, that were happening in, you know, local training schools and also British promotions around the UK. Yeah, I was, uh, I was shocked, actually. My colleague, Danielle Vincent, um, has an interest in um, all of this, and she has... Um, um, friends um, um, concerned with wrestling and um, she was talking about it and I was I was quite shocked but then on the other hand perhaps I did not ought to be shocked because wherever you have sports um, activities um, involving young people there is always that risk of you know um, abuse taking place so yes I was surprised but stepping back why would wrestling be any different to any other sport or activity? So um, the report was released, uh, this parliamentary report, um, last week. And um, obviously um, you've had great experience in sort of like dealing with sort of like issues um, around sort of like abuses in sports. Um, what was your um, initial thoughts upon reading the report and how it relates to the work that you do? I thought the report was very constructive it does raise a series of questions, though, but wrestling needs to get to grips with because the APPG um, have not really got to grips with some of the big issues. So I don't want to detract from the report because I think the report is very powerful, very constructive. And it would be, in my experience, um, very unwise to ignore what they're saying. So obviously, I come from a position where I see, tragically, children young people getting abused in these kind of sports settings we've had it with um, football we've had it with athletics you you know whether we like it or not sexual abuse of young people can happen in any corner in any setting and so what wrestling needs to be concerned with is safeguarding and it should not get caught up in semantics as to whether wrestling is a sport or not a sport or whatever. It needs to face up to the fact that bad things happen. And so it needs to ensure that it's got its house in order to try and minimise the risk to young people. Because if it doesn't, then it's going to damage itself. And Obviously, lots of people are going to get hurt along the way, and that's avoidable. But wrestling collectively needs to avoid that happening for the individual's concerned, but also for its own sake. Yeah, exactly. I think um, I think that was very well put. Um, but, Will, you wanted to ask some follow-up, um, certainly concerning sort of like DBS checks and things in, in wrestling. Yeah, no, so I think I agree, I agree with Alan to begin with. I think the report is a constructive first step. And I think one of the things it does quite a good job of in several instances is basically map out the, the extent of the problem. And I think one of the best elements it does that in is talking about DBS checks, because 
Um, one of the things I've been annoyed at this past year is people kind of holding up basic DBS checks as a way of dealing with these issues. And obviously they have their place, but it's really the enhanced DBS checks that will allow you to actually make sure um, young people are safe in wrestling schools. Could you just explain, Alan, the diff- for our listeners, the difference between a basic and an enhanced DBS check and what you have to do for a position to be wor- no, to warrant an enhanced DBS check? Well, okay. So to get to that s- stage, though, um, a lot needs to happen. And I think we also have to recognise, and this is my own opinion, and others may not agree with me, um, you need to avoid the situation where you think that DBS checks or enhanced DBS checks are some kind of panacea. They're very important, but you've got to have the right environment to make sure that they are going to be of value. Okay, so... um, you know, identifying somebody with a criminal record is one thing. Um, and you can say, right, this per- we've done a, um, a check and this person's got a criminal record, so we're not going to have him coming through or her coming through these doors. Fine. But sadly and tragically, um, lots of young people get abused by people who haven't got a criminal record, who haven't necessarily come onto the radar of the authorities before so you know you know an enhanced dbs check may not even pick up anything about this particular person because they've never come to anybody's attention before and so you don't want to get into this position where you think aha you know we're doing all of this so we're okay and everything's going to be okay because the problem is that you find down the road it wasn't okay because you haven't got the right culture in place. So, um, you know, I was looking um, yesterday at um, um, some safeguarding um, that's published by um, British Wrestling. You know, that's all good. You know, that's, you know, it says saying all the right things. But, uh, if, you know, wrestling is diffusive. I think that's the right way of putting it. You know, it's, there is no sort of overarching regulatory bodies understand it, but can enforce, um, carry out rain checks, make sure that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed when it comes to safeguarding. So if you've got a sort of splintered setup, you know, that is a risk in itself. Because in the absence of some kind of overarching regulatory body, how are you going to make sure that every club, every organisation, every coach, every school is doing what it's supposed to be doing? And if they turn around and say, oh, well, we're doing a DBS check, fine, but that is probably not going to be enough. So you've got to start thinking like the um, APG are sort of saying in their report, think about um, governance and you've also got to think about culture so that let's just say you've got a school um, and you've got obviously young people there. Supposing if something isn't quite right, would that youngster 
know who to express their concerns to, who would they go to? And if they did go to that particular person, does that particular person know what he or she should then do with that bit of information? What do they do with it? Who do they go to? And so on. So um, that is what leaps out at me from the from the report. Um, you know, I think wrestling, from what I'm hearing and from what I've read, has got some pretty fundamental questions that it needs to ask itself and come up with some answers. Yeah, no, if I could just come back to that, I agree with that entirely. I mean, the, the point I was going to make with the enhanced DBS checks, which the report makes as well, is at the moment wrestling training is so chaotic, hmm. they probably don't have anybody who um, would qualify to be eligible because it enhanced DBS checks, you have to be working in, on a sustained basis with young people and vulnerable adults. But yep. because you have this horrible thing where often wrestling training schools don't have identified lead trainers, they have children uh, training with adults and uh, with no bespoke children's classes, you can't even get that little bit extra that comes from mm. an enhanced check where, you know, you know, things that weren't that didn't end up in convictions can be disclosed so you know if there's a problem. And I think it goes back to that wider thing of, like you were saying, it's about the culture, it's about professionalism, it's it's about your risk assessment. Don't do you have it where you 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 do you have people supervising the coaches at all time? Or is it actually a coach, a lead wrestler, just being allowed to train individual wrestlers on a one on one basis? Things like social media, things like how they contact each other. Yeah. You know, at wrestling at the moment, you've got young, you know, you've got children who are wrestlers who are sharing cars with adults who, who haven't been checked, who are giving adults their personal phone number or their social media profile. This would be unheard of. Scenario. Let us say you've got a particular school and there's a concern that an adult a member of you know the coaching staff um keeps wandering into the changing room okay nothing actually happens but this individual keeps wandering into the changing room the you know which you know is the changing room used by the by the youngsters the children and young people you know which clearly is not supposed to happen um and i think it's an example that is perhaps cited um by British um, um, wrestling. Um, what do you do with that information? You know, unless you've got the structure there, and unless it's going to be dealt with properly and recorded, um, investigated, and so on, um, whether you have a DBS check or an enhanced DBS check, you know, it's not going to come up. And you know, that mem that particular individual, let us say, he or she is asked to leave. Um, because, you know, um, of, their, of their sort of conduct, you know, they actually haven't necessarily committed a criminal offence, but their behaviour gives rise to concern. You know, they could go wandering off to the next town and, you know, start training with some other club or, or school or whatever it happens to be. Um, and that is... That is the sort of low-level 
issue, concern, that unfortunately can lead to all the sorts of problems that we want to avoid. And I think it comes back, Will, to the question that you're, you're asking me, which is that, you know, there needs to be in place a proper um, structure, proper level of governance. Um, and, you know, um, that governing body needs to have the ability to, you know, check up on safeguarding to make sure that it's working. Could I ask you another question, Alan? I don't know if you've had any experience with this, because obviously wrestling, is, wrestling in Britain in particular is slightly unique because you have children performing alongside adults. And I think most people in Britain would defend that. And, you know, maybe it's gone, it's gone too far, but certainly older children being allowed to perform against, uh, perform with adults um, is a benefit to them. Yeah. Um, the only thing I could think of is things like dance and acting, where you have children performing with adults. It's not obviously something that's going to happen in sports um, very, very, very often. What type of safeguarding measures can you put in place when you it's not so much training now it's it's during performances it's during events when children are performing as part of a cast of performers most of whom are adults it sounds like a difficult question but i don't think it actually has a difficult answer because it all comes back to the to the basics is you know you've got to have the right culture so if you've got the right culture the issues that flow from that kind of scenario um are, are, can be identified and you can risk assess and you can decide and determine what are the issues what are the potential problems what are the risks um and have we got the right policies and procedures in place to make sure that we've minimized the risk of anything going wrong from a safeguarding perspective and if heaven forbid, there is something wrong, everyone knows where they stand and what they need to do. So I don't think in itself um, it's difficult if you have got the right structure and the right culture in place. You know, you just think about it, you know, you know, if the, you know, it could be to everyone's benefit that you know adults and young people are taking part together. You know, um, and you know, it could be, as I said, to everyone's benefit or to everyone's advantage. And um, it would be a great shame to just you know to stop it if that is the case. But of course, you've got to take the responsibility with that. And it just brings me back to what we were talking about a few moments ago, which is ensuring that you have got and I'm repeating myself, correct governance, effective governance, the right culture, the right policies and procedures in place so that you can analyse the risk and minimise the risk accordingly. I think um, I think we are sort of like years away from having sort of like any sort of regu regulatory body in British wrestling. But I suppose, Alan, from your expertise, uh, what are some initial things that sort of like promotions and uh, training schools can be doing to, to, you know, to get themselves on the right track. So as we've discussed, you know, uh, I talked about this with Alex, um, saying that, you know, it, it seemed like it was a wild west out there in British wrestling. What are some initial things that people can be looking at and, and doing? Well, I think everyone needs to understand if something goes wrong, there could be criminal law consequences. 
But leaving that to one side, those who run organisations um, concerned with wrestling ultimately could have a civil liability for anything that goes wrong. So let's give a very simple example. Let us say a coach decently assaults a young person, then not only is the coach liable both in criminal law, but also in civil law, and those who are responsible for the coach could also find themselves responsible in civil law. And it could cost them a small fortune, you know, um, um, a harm that can be caused to a young person as a result of being indecently assaulted can be immense. And, you know, the, the claims that can be brought can be considerable because of the consequences. So not only is there, you know, the criminal um, side to all of this, there's the civil law aspect as well, which could, you know, result in um, compensation being ordered by the courts. You know, it could it could easily ruin an individual or a business. And, you know, some may well be insured for this type of thing, but insurance companies, in my experience, are always looking to see what policies and procedures are in place. And, you know, insurers do not want to pay out compensation unless they have to do so. And insurers are not going to insure individuals and organisations who are not seen to be as responsible as perhaps they ought to be. So it comes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. You know, this APPG report is extremely constructive and because it's pointing to lots of potential issues which wrestling needs to address if wrestling doesn't address um, these is issues and children and young people are hurt, um, then it's going to cost wrestling a great deal, not only just in reputation, but financially. So individually, any organisation concerned with the training of young people, um, young people performing wrestling, um, promoting wrestling, which engages young people, they all potentially have a civil liability, which means that they've got to accept their responsibility to ensure that they've got appropriate safeguarding and procedures in place. Because if they don't and something goes wrong, then, as I said, it's going to cost them in reputation, but it will also cost them in, in, um, in financial terms too. Um, Will, any any sort of final questions for Alan? No, I thought that was great. And I think I think one of the key things that I think came from what Alan has said is, is that cultural atmosphere, particularly in training schools. And it's also it goes back to that thing of do you have you know, a clear structure? Are you keeping registers of the adults who are taking training? Or no, are you doing communications a proper way? Like this is all really basic. Um and I think I saw you um, last week, Alan, saying like it is shocking that wrestling can't even do these basic things, let alone having a proper governing body to handle the really you know, the worst case scenarios as well. And of course, wrestling can look at other sports um, and other activities as well and see what works well and also what has gone wrong, because we see time and time again with lots of organisations which you would assume would have their would have got their act together, but have not. So they've got lots of written policies, but whilst they look good on paper, in practice they turned out to be 
meaningless because all these fancy detailed policies were created. They all looked good. They all sounded good, but they were shoved literally in an envelope and placed on top of a filing cabinet or in a filing cabinet where no one looked at them. So it's a big error for any organization to think, oh, well, we've now got a safeguarding policy. Hey, hey, box ticked. We're okay. Far from it. You know, that is fool's paradise. So not only do you have to have the procedure, you need to understand it and you need to ensure that your staff and your colleagues and everybody in your organization actually understands it. And and you not only do that today, but you do it next week, next month, next year, and so on. You have to go back to it because people forget and people fall into a sort of sense of you know it's not going to happen here we're okay nothing nasty is going to happen here and they have a false sense of um, security where in fact it's insecurity because you know they don't know what they're doing they think they do but they don't and there are organizations out there that will come in and pressure test your policies and procedures and so look to see what has happened elsewhere and you could look at the independent inquiry for child sexual abuse it looked at all sorts of different organizations and institutions up and down the land and speaking to myself there's lots of common threads and patterns where which showed you yeah you know um very able intelligent business orientated people had gone to the trouble of having policies and procedures in place but they didn't work because they were sort of forgotten about and they weren't tested and retested and staff weren't reminded, staff weren't properly trained or retrained, more importantly. Um, and so all I would say to any organisation out there concerned with wrestling is your opportunity. It's wake-up time. Don't get caught out. That was brilliant. Thank you, Alan. Really, really eye-opening, certainly a lot of uh, food for thought in, in what you've been saying there. And uh, yeah, I think it is uh, going to be a long, hard road for uh, British wrestling. But uh, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a very busy man, but thank you for taking the time to speak with us uh, today. Thank you, Martin. Nice to meet you too, Will. Thank you, Alan. Huge thanks, obviously, to Alan for joining us there. Really interesting uh, hearing his thoughts on everything, considering his expertise and his experience in in this sort of uh, line of work, Will. And um, what's always uh, jarring to me, and um, especially talking to Alex and uh, Alan, is that they're astounded, you know, how astounded they are that, you know, there isn't these regulations already in British wrestling and, and certainly in training schools. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's definitely been a common theme. And I think the reality is, I think the more you look into it, the worse it is. I mean, I always, actually, I interviewed Alex on my own podcast last week, and I put to her what Brian Alvarez had said, obviously, of the uh, Wrestling Observer, when he compared how the jiu-jitsu training he does um, is organized compared to the wrestling training he does. Mm. Um, and like this is him, you know, with wrestling training, him going to be trained as a wrestler. And like with the jiu-jitsu trade, and it's like there's registers, you must be paid up. You know, that only, the only adults, uh, the only like non-trainees present are the coaches. If it's a child class, the parents have to stay uh, to supervise. All nice and legit wrestling. It's like there may be one guy on the door 
who's just grabbing your money off you. There's all sorts of people around. No one's taking a register. The person who's delivering the seminar is just a random wrestler they've got in that people think is good. And it's like, yeah, it's no wonder wrestling has issues uh, when it's organized that way. And obviously in, the, in America, it's not that big a deal because they don't tend to train uh, children to be wrestlers. But in the UK, we have that same slapdash approach, slash attitude, whilst we're actually training an awful lot of children to be wrestlers. And so, yeah, we really do need to become more like dance, sport, whatever you want to compare wrestling to in terms of how we how people are trained. Yeah, because I think the thing that really stuck out to me with what Alan was saying, that you know, because we are seeing a lot of British promotions now, like sort of like waving pieces of paper around and going, oh, look, well, we've got this sort of code of conduct and we've got this and we've got that. And what he noted there that, you know, organizations have been doing this for years and it's on them to make sure that they're enforcing this and keeping up with it rather than just throwing it through, um, you know, just leaving it in an envelope and putting it in, you know, in a box to be forgotten about. You know, the, the one thing you always have to remember with DBS checks is what I used to work in university outreach. One of my managers told me Jimmy Savile would have had a DBS check. The man had never been caught of doing anything before he died. The whole scale of that man's crimes was laid out for us all to see. You know, I think over 100 children or young people abused by him. But he would have got a DBS check. That's why it's not just about the piece of paper. And it's certainly not just about a basic DBS check. You know, it is like Alan said, it's about your culture. It's about your organization. It's about your structures. It's about everything. You can't just say, we've got a DBS check. This person's fine. It's not that simple. And particularly when you move out of the issues to do with child abuse and safeguarding in training schools and for child performers as they go to promotions. And you think about the broader range of speaking out issues, you know, the sexual harassment, the the bullying, um, the sexual abuse of fans. You know, all of that stuff will also take different, will need different ways to uh, deal with it. So obviously, you know, you have um, you know, great interest in in politics. So, you know, when this APPG report was released last week, this seemed like really in your wheelhouse. So I just wanted to get some of your initial thoughts from obviously it is 108 pages long. I would recommend people do go and, and read the whole thing because it is very interesting and they've certainly laid out a lot of things that um can be done in British wrestling. But what were some of your initial thoughts when you when you first looked through the report? Yeah, so um I think it's a useful exercise. Uh, which I wasn't convinced it would be when it was announced, if I'm being honest. I think it's a really interesting document in terms of how it lays out some of the issues wrestling has faced. I think, ironically, some of the best writing in it is explaining basically how impossible it will be to get a governing body up and running. Um, I think there's there's a brilliant passage in the report where they literally have a table that shows that whilst everyone in British wrestling says they want a governing body, nobody can agree what that governing governing body should do, who should staff the governing body, how it should be funded, and what powers it should have. Like, there's just like, and it's not like there was just a billion ideas about what that could look like, and they're all contradictory. And so... That's what I'm slightly concerned about, particularly listening to Alex talk to you just um, just just now, that they might get into that quagmire 
which I I just don't see anything coming of it. I just, you know, we, we've been trying. I think Alex Shane tried in the noughties to set up a British wrestling, uh, the British Wrestling Council. Before that, you had a joint promotions cartel, which had its roots in actually the previous parliamentary inquiry that set up the what what became the British wrestling rules. I just I just think in reality that the business in Britain is too diverse. It's too fractious um, that I just don't see how you can get a governing body up off the ground. And what makes that a big issue is so many of their other recommendations spring off from the idea of having a governing body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you deal with insurance? How do you deal with case management? How do you deal with setting standards for training schools? You know, you, you you can tell like the jigsaw they are building in their mind is that would all come from that governing body, which you know, absolutely is is needed and will be a great boon. I just can't see how they can get it up off the ground. It would have to be some kind of independent entity, wouldn't it? And it'd basically have to have to be like if you want to run a show, these are the rules you have to adhere by, otherwise you're not running a show, basically. But the problem with that is, and we're seeing this with boxing, which is the closest comparison. You can ignore that then, because like the, you have in boxing, you're the British uh, Boxing Board of Control, which is a private company independent of the industry, but like they rely on the industry for their funding, mm. so that compromises up. But if they do, the, the few times they do kind of say no, we are not going to let the industry get away with this. We're going to say no. Promoters just ignore them and go elsewhere. I mean, I think there was um, a David Hay, Derek Chisora fight that wasn't uh, wasn't licensed by the British uh, Boxing Board of Control. Still went ahead. Uh, Frank mm. Warren made his name by doing a non-board of control um, events. I think in the seventies. So it's difficult to see how you can get to a point where that would be kind of accepted by the business as when they all had to take part in. Particularly because you got to remember at least the the uh, boxing board of control has owns the British titles. So they have that carrot. They're like, you know, if you, if you work with us, if you put events on that are licensed by us, you know, your fighters, your events can be featured with our titles. What, what would, what would a wrestling governing body have? Yeah. It's, and, it's, and, it's and a real tricky one, isn't it though? That's the thing. And there doesn't need to be some kind of thing put in place for it. But what was interesting for me coming out of this report um, and a lot of sort of like quite major news publications picked up on this, um, including the BBC. And I think the times had an article um, was that the, the main thing that they were picking up was this um, classification under training schools and uh, making it a, a, a sport. Yeah, that was a really interesting idea. The more I've, because it, it says, you know, training schools as sport, the events as entertainment. To deal with the first, uh, the, the latter first, because it's the simplest, I, I was kind of like, that seems a bit goofy to me. The basic reason for that is it will just make it a lot easier for wrestling to get into entertainment venues. You know, you have a lot of like nightclubs, theatres, um, you know, community centres that aren't that aren't used to hosting sporting events, don't want to host sporting events, and so when you you go to them as a wrestling promotion and say I want to host a wrestling event, they're like, well, is it a sporting event or an entertainment event? 
and like, oh, it's it's I suppose technically it's a sporting event. They don't want to touch it. They want to charge you more insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why they're talking about entertainment for the events. In terms of um, training, the ideas actually about training are quite interesting because it's not just you take what is currently wrestling training and you call it a sport. It's like you try and make wrestling training a bit more objective and you almost turn it into, you know, into something like um, these aren't sports, but this is kind of the thing like, like a dance or I suppose a synchronized swimming where you are actually doing performances that can be graded, that have objective criteria, that maybe there's uh, you know, inter-wrestling school competitions where you have judges assessing um, how well the, each individual school performed in their set-piece matches. And, and the whole idea of it is, if you do that, it then means the trainers are, are trained in a more objective, fair way. And you kind of stamp out some of the exploitation, some of the favoritism that has been endemic in wrestling schools. The other idea, the big, the other part of the idea is, is if you do have it as um, a sport, you can have Sport England support these training schools. You can have Sport England potentially as a badge that encourages people to engage. And so parents are sending their kids to a wrestling school, knows these are wrestling schools to kind of give their custom to. It may open up avenues for funding, may open up avenues to share in Sport England's insurance or case management systems. That actually, it's both trying to reimagine what wrestling training is but then also just provide some more legitimacy and funding and support for wrestling schools. So, like, if they could get that to work, it'd be great. Like, it, it would be revolutionary. Um, but that's a big project. Yeah, I think the thing is, is what this report... And I was like you, when I first did this report was coming out, I was like, you know, with a lot of things to do with British wrestling, you kind of roll your eyes and you go, oh, we go again. I've seen it all before, you know, it's all talk and stuff. But after reading it, you know... It does actually sort of like open the doorway, you know. If it, you know, they can't put things into place as, as as law, but it does open up, you know, the discussion and you know, and things that people should be adhering to, and, and at least it does that. The the bits I think are best, and I hope that these are the things they focus on, is the we could get the government, we could lobby the government to change this regulation. Because that seems to me the simplest stuff. You're not dragging the MPs into the um, the politics of Britres. Um, so things like one of the more innovative ideas of the report is at the moment there's no standard for what a, uh, mm. a, a wrestling ring is. So why don't the government tell the British Standards Institution to create that standard? And then all wrestling rings in the country have to be built to that standard to ensure they're safe and they can't be sold if they don't meet it. That seems perfectly sensible. Um, there's they, they talk about, you know, at the moment, I've made this point before, but like British wrestling is regulated in terms of events. Training schools aren't regulated at all um, unless, no, unless like criminal law is broken. But like to run a wrestling event in Britain, in England and Wales, even sorry, um, you need your local authority to uh, license it. 
because it's a licensable activity and the licensing act of 2004. And I actually remember saying to Andy Quilden last year, you could look at the licensing act as a way of tightening the requirements for wrestling in England and Wales by make, by saying to them, by getting councils to say, well, actually you need X, Y, Z before you can run this show. And that's actually a recommendation in the report. You know, get the home office to issue guidelines to councils about what they should be looking for when they license wrestling events, which which means you can say things like if you want to, and I, ne- I wouldn't necessarily go this far, but you could say things like, well, you have to have a paramedic on standby. I think for some smaller events, that's OTT, but for bigger events, that certainly makes sense. Or you must have your first aiders, or you must have a, a full risk assessment produced, or you must have X, Y, Z. That would make a big difference. That would make sure wrestling events are run in a safe, professional way. Um, um, you know, the health and safety executive, getting them to release um, guidelines about what uh, health and safety means in the context of wrestling training or wrestling performing. Again, that would make a big difference. And I think it's those little bureaucratic fixes that actually could do a lot of good um, because I think that's almost bringing the stick of government to bear on the industry and the more government does to the industry and the more local authorities are regulating regulating the industry the more the industry may realize it needs to speak with one voice and it needs to actually work together to stop having these things done to it all the time yeah those are some really good points and that is always going to be the issue isn't it especially in british wrestling that you know you are trying to get all these you know egos together to agree on one thing but i suppose you know also, the report does lay out, you know, it, it, there's the um, there's the pledge that, um, that the promoters can sign. And obviously, you know, critics are going to say, well, they can just ignore that and carry on regardless. But I suppose the interesting thing that Alex brought up in the interview with me was that, you know, that raises questions for people who don't want to sign that pledge. And why don't you want to sign it? And I suppose that's that's an interesting way of going down down that route. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think the idea of a pledge makes sense. I worry that pledge may be too long for fans to get their arms around because, like, primarily that's going to work. So the fans can understand it and they know um, um, to not support a, a, a promotion that doesn't abide by that, that pledge. Um, I do actually have some issues with some of the things in it. Um, as I said before, I, I think for your, most promotions, it's fine to say they need medical professionals. But you got you got some promotions in Britain that really should be compared to amateur theatre, grassroots Sunday league football. It's just completely over the top to say they need a medical professional at their shows. You know, first ladies would be fine. But I think the bigger issue I have actually with the pledge um, is it just slightly contradict what they say in their report because, like the, the speaking out section. Um, is a bit weird because it does go off into several details about protecting perpetrators, about online witch hunts of alleged perpetrators. You even get the lie repeated that the the sad deaths of uh, Hannah Kimura and uh, Ryan Smile were due to rest, rest, wrestling fans abusing them online. And it's like, if the pledge um, was going to work 
it was going to have some sort of punitive impact. Well, then you need fans to say online and in other ways, we are boycotting your promotion because you have not signed a pledge. We are boycotting you as a performer because you have not signed this pledge. And that, to me, feels like the type of witch hunts that a big section of this, of, sorry, of this quote-unquote witch hunts, that a big section of the speaking out chapter in this report is implicitly criticizing. So I, 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 I don't see, I don't think they're thought through um, that approach. You know, it's either right for fans to take it into their own hands and say to promotion, stop booking this person, they've done wrong. Or it's not right to do, um, and I'm not sure they've came down on the right side. They're not, I'm not sure they've made up their minds on that one yet. Yeah, that was a, a really tricky passage of it, wasn't it? And I suppose, you know, because there are a, a few people who, you know, who did take part in the report who wanted to remain anonymous, and it just made you wonder where they were getting that information from. Yeah, and and like, but also like, there are ones where you know exactly who they got the information from. And it's like, oh, I think you should have double checked that. Mm. So it's like you got knuckle logs. Uh, knuckle logs used in the report to continue their feud with uh, certain women's wrestlers who do customs. Um, uh, do customs. You've got someone dobbing in Kamikaze Pro for the Chantel Gel, uh, Chantel Jordan versus Joe Janela match. Um, you've got people sniping at Rev Pro for having a relationship with New Japan. And it's just like, mm, I'm not sure, guys. Yeah, and this, is not, this is not the MP's fault. It's just that like, Brit Rez is a bit of a den of vipers. Um, I, think, I think they do highlight that in the report, even in the first passage where they say, you know, um, through the research and everything, where, you know, they had a lot of sort of like, you know, backbiting and bravado and things like that. And they even note that right at the start of the report. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like, yes, it, it, that, uh, yeah, that there was a big passage about, you know, we've heard about, you know, people undermining each other and using, you know, various things to cause events to be cancelled. And, you know, this is, this shouldn't be what British wrestling is about. So I think you'll find it is. Mm. Yeah, I suppose ripping posters down and things like that is still, uh, you know, was still a common practice pre COVID. But, um, I suppose, um, you know, we can start talking about some actual wrestling now, but just some final thoughts on the report. For me, you know, I think it is, a, a you know, a, a good starting point and it's going to take years um, for, you know, for things to get better, I feel, at this point. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, um, um, which is why I think they should try and go down the, the government route. I think that might be a bit quicker. I am uh, preparing... I'm in the middle of writing a huge article about it, which will be on my Substack. Um, it's already like 4,000 words, um, and I've not even got around to, to summarizing the recommendations yet. Wow. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping that will drop by the time that will have dropped by the time people listen- hear this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll have more very soon. So moving away to that and on to uh, obviously WrestleMania week uh, dominated the wrestling headlines last week. And uh, we had a number of European representatives. Um, but before we get on to actual WrestleMania, we had the small matter of uh, NXT UK, the prelude show, which uh, saw the in-ring return of Walter. And um, I mean, obviously me and Ben have said I'd know him on the show. And I'm sure you've been on here before saying, you know, how you, you know, find NXT UK fairly pointless. But uh, 
top to bottom an enjoyable show i think um you know we opened up with tyler Bate and noam dar who were battling out over their heritage um a chance to face a kid for the heritage cup and um I suppose your mileage will vary on this one, depending on how much you like the sort of like round rules for these matches. But I mean, for me, I do get why they are doing it, you know, to try and make it a bit different and to try and go back into that British history. But I suppose for certain points in the match, you know, perhaps they were off better, better off doing a two out of three falls match because it sometimes feels, you know, they're building up something in a match and then it's sort of like cut stone dead by the fact that they've got to go back to their corners and um, and stop. But I thought Tyler Bate and Noam Dar uh, had a pretty enjoyable match to open the show, Will. It was okay. I I, I think so highly of Tyler Bate, I was disappointed. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think this... Noam Dar had quite a good... I think I think he may have been against A-Kid. He had a very good um, match in the Heritage Cup uh, tournament it, that, that crowned the first champion. And so, and I don't think this was as good. And I'm sorry, to me, you know, as good as Akid is, Tyler Bates should be having a bare match. Mm. And I just think he's lo- he's lost something since he's came back from his absence last summer. He doesn't have the same uh, spark. Um, I think the changes to his physique are a bit noticeable. He doesn't quite, quite have the same strength or snap in his work that he once did. Um, and also, it has to be said, they NXC UK is addicted to doing the you no. Know, someone gets an early lead, someone gets the um, it, you know levels it up late on, and then you get the frantic finish for the final. I the think final I think to be fair, ball. you could say that about most like uh, two out of three falls rules. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is being, I remember once saying like the way they should do rules like this is that submissions and knockouts just end the match. Hmm. Because if you submit, you're submitted. If you're knocked out, you're knocked out. So it should. So in that way, you can still have the, the ability to have a sudden finish and vary up the formula. But like I was watching this live, and I think I was talking to Andy Ogden, who's also um, of this parish, um, and he was, you know, he was just saying, "Oh, you you just could just feel the the the, the, the was it the baitful come in, like it was so telegraphed, and that's." It's not really what you want, is it? No. Um, it's interesting you say that about Tyler Bate because um, it was, you know, before he made his comeback to NXT UK, uh, the, Trent Seven was asked about him, wasn't he? And he said, you know, you know, obviously he's gone off to, you know, think about his life and things like that because obviously, you know, you give someone that much sort of like critical acclaim and money and thing. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing here and, you know, it, it can mess with the head sort of thing. And so it was interesting that it was almost immediately after that interview, Tyler seemed to make his uh, comeback to wrestling. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, I I mean, it's been the rumours about, you know, they want him in America, but Tyler doesn't want to go. And yeah, it does feel like his career is stuck and it doesn't feel like it's entirely WWE's fault either that he he doesn't know what he wants to do or what he wants to be. Well, um, next matchup, we had uh, NXT UK Women's Champion Kaylee Ray teaming up with uh, Isla Dawn, and then um, they faced off against Miko Satomura and uh, Emilia <laughs> McKenzie. And um, what's interesting about this one, obviously, uh, Millie McKenzie, now Emilia, the name change, and then... You know, this was a sort of like big comeback to NXT UK. You know, she'd had a brief sort of like flit with them a while back, and then this was a, a first match in the brand. 
Yeah, great, great to see her back, given the reasons um, why she left, which was basically she couldn't stand to be around Travis Banks. The the name change is goofy. Um, it's weird how Na- NXT UK has decided to change names after. Sh- yeah, the because they've stopped doing it for a while, haven't they? And it's yeah, like yeah. people sort of like keep their names, and now they seem to have you know gone back into it full force. But I don't think NXT UK had really done it ever. Like NXT kind of changes their mind all the time but nxc uk are just let people keep their indie gimmicks but you know it's ever since they did the Shaw samuels angle where he rejected his new name mm. that they've started doing it a lot which is bizarre and uh, my prediction by the way is that at some point you'll drop the amelia and it will just be mckenzie that you'll have wwe you know you can only have one name uh style uh push but like but she looked good here um got pick, uh, picked up the pinfall um miko is just a, just a person on the roster any chance they had of making her a special attraction is gone um but the match was perfectly fun i preferred this tag match to the opener to be honest um they're both within that like three star three and a half range but i thought this was um a notch above dar dar bait it was just a fun well put together tag yeah that I agree with that. And also, I think it was definitely after um, sort of reading her, her accounts last summer um, in speaking out, it was great to see Millie McKenzie look like she's having fun again and, and you know, seemingly get that confidence back. Yeah, no, and she looked great. No, she looked like she looked like proper on top of a top form, uh, moving well, lots of, exp- lots of felt, felt explosive in her suplexes. Um, so, yeah, no, I thought it was a really good uh, return for, for, for Millie. What was what was up next was um for me personally um was my I didn't have you know I, I'm working full time I didn't have time for any of the sort of like GCW and and things like that but you, for me my uh, plus you're favorite, doing the kitchen yeah exactly and uh, my favorite match of of uh, of the whole of Mania week was uh Walter putting the title on the line against Rampage Round I don't think there was any doubt about the result was there I don't think um you know Rampage is not at the level that he's going to be beating Walter for the title here, but absolutely fantastic match really 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 enjoyed it you know it's Walter doing what he does best and you know someone who can really match him in Rampage Round in in terms of intensity and you know and and the chops and the punches and things like that and a really really enjoyable match. I really enjoyed it. I think the thing I most enjoyed was uh, was Nigel giving me a history lesson that it was World War Two that led to the dissolution of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, I thought it was great. I mean, I, I I made this point back in 2019 that Walters' WWE matches weren't quite hitting the heights they should because they were constantly having people fall down when he hit them which was just slowing the matches down because he was constantly having to bend up and pick people up. And this was just back to that Walter formula where, you know, know, he's just laying bombs in thick and fast, but the other person can stand up to him and they can fire back. And it was fought at a really, really fast pace. Um, I thought Rampage looked great. I thought he looked like he was really, like Rampage can, he can be a methodical worker. I think that's the neutral term. Uh, others may say plodding at times, but like here, he was really up for it. He was moving fast, um, and I think Walter was was also moving fast and being allowed to hit a lot of moves. So I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. I prefer it to the Chomper match, um, even though they're both very good, very different matches. And the only thing I could think of is 
no poor Joe Coffee watching this because I'm mm. sure I'm sure if you give Joe Coffee a 15 minute water match, may not have been quite this good, but it'd have been it'd have been around this level. And if you'd give a rampage a 30 minute match against Walter, it'd have probably been around as bad as the one uh, Joe Coffee had with him uh, last January. You know, this what really made this match let these guys showcase what they can do is the fact that they didn't overstay its welcome. Now, Walter can wrestle at a fast pace for 30 minutes. We've seen that against Tyler Bate. Most men his size can't. And so if you want a fast, dynamic, explosive match involving Walter and another heavyweight, you've got to keep it short. Yeah, um, I think you're on your own there, feeling sorry for Joe Coffey. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, with everything that came out. But, yeah, not for uh, me. It might have been, uh, might have been uh, too many Triple H spots been thrown in there. But um, yeah, for me, it, it, it's, I mean, before we get into the Champa match, I mean, is Walter one of the most smartest workers around today, Will? Because, I mean, you know, he, uh, you know, pure speculation, but I imagine he's getting paid the most out of any of the NXT UK guys. He gets to probably stay at home the majority of the time of year. They fetch him in for sort of big events like WrestleMania and as we saw when he came in for Survivor Series. And then probably, well, I mean, he's had four matches this year so far. And, he's you know, he comes in, has these sort of match of the year contenders and leaves for a few months then comes back and does the same thing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely um, uh, got the best deal. And it's it's been clear by what you want. You know, it's, you know he's very clear. That he wants to stay in Germany. He's he's no he's, he's settled there. He doesn't want to move to America. Um, and he wants to wrestle for as much money whilst doing that. And so yeah, you know, well, you know, I think we were all sad when he signed. You couldn't begrudge him signing because clearly the best way to earn no earn money in what he wants to do is to do it in, in the way he's doing. And, like, look, he's bringing it. I mean, you know, he, it, it was a bit of a rocky start because I wasn't a fan of the Dunn feud or, obviously, we had the aforementioned coffee match. But the stuff he's done um, this past, no, since since the end of uh, lockdown, the first lockdown in the UK, it's pretty much universally been great. Um, so, yeah, no, really, really top-quality stuff. So uh, moving on to uh, NXT proper, and obviously we had the two takeover shows, and uh, night one uh, especially had a, a fair amount of uh, European talent in there because opening night one was uh, Pete Dunne against Kushida, and um, I mean, fairly decent match, enjoyable opener. Uh, what was interesting for me is they were going into it talking about them being the technical masters and things like that, and then they ended up it ended up being quite spotty for me, I thought. Yeah, I always find this with WWE. They have very, they have a very odd definition of technical wrestler, mm. and I would like to, to, I'd like them to sit down and explain their definition to me. <laughs> I used to have this with Chris Benoit because I never thought of Chris Benoit as an overly technical wrestler, particularly not by the point he got into WWF. You know, he, you know, he was, you know, he was a striker. He was a suplex merchant. He wasn't exactly doing complicated uh, holds anymore. And same with Pete Dunne. I've, I've I've never seen Pete Dunne as a particularly technical wrestler. He's he's a power, you know he hits power moves. He breaks people's fingers. He you know he hit he smacks them in the face. Um, I just, I, I get the sense it's just because he's British. They keep calling him the technical mm. wrestler. It's like oh well, they do that technical wrestling over in Britain, don't they? It's like 
not really. Um, I thought the match was fine. Um, I will. Th- I, I think. I, I think I may have already forgotten about it, but you know, it was a good three star match. You you don't want it to be more more than that for an opener. Um, I think there's still an issue with uh, Pete in NXT, which is where does he fit? Mm. Um, I think. I think. I think. Unfortunately for him, they they finally got him over to the states just a bit after his start, after the peak of his popularity in America. And when NXT has started to move to push in bigger guys on top. So it's not entirely clear where he goes next. Um, obviously, he's had the issue where his heel stable has fallen apart because of Pat McAfee disappearing and then one of, I can't remember which one got injured, but one of his uh, one of the other members of the stable got injured. So turn babyface to wrestle Gargano? Mm. I, I think he is probably going to be like Gargano, seemingly. He's going to be one of these people who stays around in NXT for a mm. long, long time. Yeah, no, but like he's too small for the main roster, mm. and he's not a high flyer, so he, he wouldn't fit in with what no, the, the the few spots Vince is willing to give smaller guys. Yeah, and it's interesting to see what they would do with him on the main roster. I mean, would he revert back to just doing British stereotypes? Would he be able to keep this character? I mean, it seemingly, you know, you know, you'd wish your best for him, but he'd just get lost in the shuffle, wouldn't he? Yeah, but and he can't talk. I mean, he's not as bad as Tyler Bate, but but Pete Dunne is not a good promo. And if you're gonna if you're gonna thrive in the States, you've got to be a good promo. I mean, no, you 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 look here, you know, we haven't talked about it, and I don't think I haven't even watched the match. Tony Storm was relegated to the prelims of uh, of mm. NXT TakeOver, and it's never really been the same for her when they realised they couldn't get her to, to actually speak in public. Then I am on to an, another match that involved uh, some British talent. We had Brazil Young Vets against MSK against Legado Del Fantasma. And this was fantastic. I mean, just balls to the wall, all, you know, all action. And just, um, I think Brazil Young Vets and MSK, obviously, I think this is the third time they've uh, been involved in a match with these guys. And they just, you know, hit it off uh, in terms of chemistry really, really well, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when this, when their first match was announced, that just the, Dusty Classic, I was like, oh, that's going to be great. Like, that that should be a good f- formula. Because it's like, it's it's like Revival versus the Young Books, but less irritating in the sense of Grizzled Young Veterans can be the base. They can ground their high-flying high opponents for heat. But they can also go and they can also do great high-flying moves themselves when you come to kick things into higher gear for the finishing stretch. And I think you saw that here. I mean, the one thing for me is these type of matches don't work as well with no crowd. And I know there technically was a small crowd in NXT, in NXT but they were being so dwarfed by the overdubbed uh, crowd sweetening. They may as well not have been there. Um, and also, this, this to me felt like a match that would have worked better as a ladder match with the three teams going crazy. Um, it, were, you, it was a bit weird to have them suddenly stop for pinfalls. But, yeah, no, if this if you like spotty, uh, high-flying tag team matches, you can't go much wrong here. 
My only disappointment was, obviously, you know, over here in the UK, we were used to uh, Gibson opening his matches with these, uh, you know, long promos that got him booed out of the building. And now he's been doing a fair amount of promo work on NXT. But, and, you know, and people might say, oh, well, you know, how over is sort of like a regional sort of like accent and things like that going to get over in America. But I think as far as Gibson goes, you know, I think that's doing him a disservice because, you know, he's certainly very charismatic and confident on the mic and sort of in terms of his facial expressions, he's really good at sort of portraying sort of like his, his real heel character. Oh, yeah, like people who think Gibson can only do the, the Scouse promo are idiots. Um, you know, he can. He, you just lean into the other part of the gimmick, which is the idea, you know, that they're, you know, they're crystal young veterans, that they don't like these high-flying spot monkeys that they want to wrestle proper and that you know it doesn't care what you know the gullible naive young fans uh think today and um you know he can do that promo in his sleep and it'll be brilliant and it'll get heat um i think obviously the only issue with uh the first night of takeover was that it was uh it was on tv so they had to cram a, cram a lot in in two hours so mm. nobody was getting promo time no. And then um, we're on to uh, Walter against Champer, and that obviously got a lot of the plaudits over the weekend. Um, I would, uh, for me, the Rampage Round match was better than this one, but still a fantastic match. I think the only thing that maybe slowed it down was the sort of like clothesline spot where Champer kept running up and clotheslining Walter. I felt like went on for way too long and kind of like slowed the match a bit down. And of course, this being NXT, you know, they had to work in some kind of hand spot there and, you know, and trying to, you know, show that Walter chopping the uh, announce desk and Champa working over his hand. But other than that, I thought it was um, a really good match. These two did seem to have um, a lot of chemistry together. Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, the, the clothesline spot from Champa, you, you could just feel Shawn Michaels go. So what I want you guys to do, it's <laughs> like when I super kicked Sid several times and then he went down, it's exactly like that. Yeah. Um, Sure, it has to have one, even in the, in a Walter match. Um, but no, I I actually like the hand stuff um, in this match. Um, I I agree with you. NXT does it way too much. Um, but actually, I thought it was it made sense in terms of trying to equalize the the action because Chomper is so much smaller than Walter. I actually like the spots. I mean, I know it looks a little bit goofy, but like he's not actually going to injure his hands, so. That's probably the best way to make it look dramatic that you can. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to see Walter chop the ring post again in my life, if I can help it. Um, <laughs> and actually, it has to be said, I thought Walter and even the ring announcers, except Beth, Beth Phoenix, um, did an amazing job selling that hand and, and the psychology of the match. You know, Walter, you know, just brilliantly how he was holding the hand kind of limp. Um, how how he, the commentators explaining that is, you know, his left hand chops don't have the same power as right hand chops, and that's why Chomper uh, can withstand them. You know, sometimes when Walter's going for, I think he was going for like a power bomb or other power moves, and he's 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 doing a move, and he's obviously doing a move in a way that's safe, but he's also conveying that he's really struggling to do it because he can't use his right hand properly. And then it all pays off because he finally, in desperation, just goes, you know, F it, I will use my right hand. And he destroys Chomper with the clothesline and gets the win off the clothesline. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I think I went 
four and a half on this. And because I preferred the Rampage match, that meant I went four and three quarters of the Rampage match. I think in retrospect, they're both four and a half star matches. This is probably more technically proficient just because of how next level uh, Walter Selling was, even if I did find the Rampage uh, match more enjoyable. Where do you think, I mean, we talked about Pete Dunne's ceiling in WWE. I mean, where do you think Walter goes through? Obviously, you know, fans and sort of like analysts are clamoring for him to be, you know, utilized by WWE a lot more and maybe pushed onto the main roster. And certainly, you know, people are talking fantasy matches with Brock Lesnar and the like. But obviously, from us, from listening to interviews with Walter, that's the last thing on his mind. And he just wants to sort of like stay in Europe and then only, you know, fleetingly travel to the U.S., I mean, do you think he'd get lost on the main roster? I mean, you know, there's always a worry that he'd be repackaged as some, you know, with his Austrian heritage, you know, be repackaged as some kind of like, sort of like, you know, World War II type German, you know, German influence character, or maybe some kind of like, I'm Bison from Street Fighter 2 influence. And that's not what people want from Walter, is it? They want, you know, him, you know, the black trunks, the simple look, and him to go out there and have sort of banging matches every night. Adolvise is his theme song. With what is his theme song, sorry? Edelweiss, Ad- Ad- the, the song from Sound of Music. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I... Like, I think that I think the problem with Walter is if you put him on a week... He's like, Walter's like the Juggernaut in, in X-Men comics. Juggernaut is a great character if you use him sparingly, but if you try and use him week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, you start to notice a Juggernaut keeps getting his ass kicked and he mm. ceases to be a very good character. No, Walter, there's no reason why they couldn't cycle him in to do, you know, a, a couple of promo packages to then be the challenger for the world title on a throwaway pay-per-view every now and again. And I think that that get, that'd get a lot of interest. I think the issue you would have, um, as you know, me and you have seen Walter go up against New Japan talent, is does Walter feel able to hit as hard and as strong mm. um, against, against that bigger star as he does when he's going up against somebody that he feels more comfortable with? Because I think we've seen matches which we thought were going to be awesome, and then Walter seemed a bit diffident pulling his punches, because almost as if he was f- afraid to injure his more famed opponent. And so to me, I think... With Walter, it would be like a Drew McIntyre match is probably the biggest he can do at the moment. Yeah. Because Drew is somebody you just know. Oh, I know. I, I can go. You know, it's not something we've seen a lot on the Indies, but it's also something where Walter will be able to go, oh, I know I can hit this guy as hard as I want mm. because we've seen the matches that he had with Sheamus. We know, we know he's up for it. So I think, yeah, it's. I think definitely at some point they should do NXT UK champ versus, well, no, WWE champ. It's just picking the right guy to go up against Walter. I mean, they've they've talked a lot on their Twitter account about how long Walter's um, held the belt for and things. I mean, um, maybe earlier, um, you know, if this takeover ends up happening this year, whether it be in Ireland or um, over here in the UK, um, can you see anyone beating him for the title this year? I mean, certainly building up um, another rematch with Ilya, that could be the direction that they're going. They should definitely do a rematch with Dragunov. Um, I would actually do that in the States. Mm. Um, um, I'm, I'm not convinced Dragunov's that big a draw in the UK. 
actually, no, I'll go, uh, actually, I am convinced he's not a draw in the UK. Um, <laughs> well, even after they all the plaudits the match got last year and uh, more eyes on him, maybe. I, I, I don't, I think he's just a replacement level headliner in the UK. I can't see him having his own fan base, to be honest. And I do think that got so many plaudits in the States that if you put that on a NXT takeover proper card, you would have a chance of getting another um, uh, bait uh, uh, done in Chicago type mm-hmm. explosion, which I think would do the brand a lot more good than setting out its usual 2,000, 3,000 seater arena. So if I would say I'd put, I'd, I'd put do that in America, I wouldn't put a title on Dragon Up. I don't think he'd do him any favors. I think his character in NXT UK is it's a bit Ronnie Garvin. You know, he's a guy who challenges a champion. He's not a champion mm. himself. Um, but to be honest, at the moment, there's nobody on the horizon in NXT UK. I would take the title off. Um, or I would put the title on. I'd just let Walter keep it. Now, ideally, at some point, Tyler Bate gets out of his funk, and you can you can maybe go back to Tyler Bates, but let Walter have another year with it. To be honest, yeah, why like, not? Why not? Yeah. Especially if he's just going to come in and have sort of like, you know, make NXT UK interesting every every now and again. That would certainly yeah. be welcome. But I suppose moving on to uh, night two of uh, NXT TakeOver and the small matter of um, Jordan Devlin and him losing the Cruiserweight title that he's held for... Um, it was pre-COVID uh, and lockdown, wasn't it? I think he won it on the uh, Royal Rumble weekend. Um, I mean, it's obviously hard to talk about Devlin with, you know, all the accusations surrounding him. But um, as far as... I, I don't think anyone else was expecting him to keep um, the title. And I certainly don't think he's um, full-time NXT now. Yeah, no, it's, he's in a weird position. I mean, I, I will say he still doesn't look himself for, from from after summer. He is slowly but surely getting his physique back together because he he turned up to those first NXT UK tapings in like a, not appalling shape. I'm amazed they put him out, um, given how much he'd let himself go. Um, but he, but he is starting to pick up. This was a fine match. I don't think it was brilliant, um, but clearly both guys took some big risks. Although, don't know, don't know about you, were you thought Martin? But I thought some of the big bumps they took felt quite staged. I think um, that's just the case with ladder matches in WWE. Now yeah. I'm sick of seeing them. Um, but it, yeah, kind kind of just a match, you know. Like I, it, I think Devlin's best since he's came back, but just a match. And partly that is, like you say, that WWE just do too many ladder matches. Yeah, yeah, that's a big, big issue. Um, but I suppose moving on to the Mania main shows themselves, obviously Sheamus picked up the... You forgot uh, uh, Finn Balor doing the spooky stuff. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, any thoughts on, on the Finn Balor match? Um, it, it, I think it's a year since I've, I've seen Karrion Cross's entrance because he's been away injured and I don't watch NXT on a weekly basis. And that entrance is even worse than I remembered it. It's like, oh my God, that is embarrassing. Mm. <laughs> and I watch Freedom Road. <laughs> um, yeah, that was my main thought. I thought Finn Balor actually brought his A game. I think he was working really, really, really hard to get a three and a half star match out of Karrion uh, Cross, which he did. But 
my gosh. I mean... <laughs> yeah, it was a big ask of him, wasn't it? And I think it, it certainly seems that uh, Finn Balor's sort of turned a page since going back down, I suppose you could say, to NXT, because um, for me, he's, he's improved um, in leaps and bounds because he... You know, especially you had all the Fiend stuff that he was doing on Raw and, you know, a lot of his matches left you wanting. I mean, you're talking about ladder matches, the ladder match he had in, uh, oh, uh, was it the Tokyo one against Kevin mm. Owens? That sort of fell short. And, you know, any big time matches he had, you know, always fell short for me. And I think he's had a new lease of life since going back down to NXT. And I think um, they could probably do that with, um, you know, a number of people on the main roster. The, the one guy who goes to NXT to get away from spooky uh, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and the one thing I will say is that it's one of my pet peeves. I know it's me being, um, being picky, but because I, I knew Japan does this a lot as well, I hate it in wrestling when they clearly show a guy has been knocked out, and they just let the match carry on. There was one scene where Cross is like just destroying Balor with a knees to the back of his head, and it's like Balor's out. Balor's is Balor is not moving. I mean, quote unquote, and it's and the match just continues. It's like, well, no, he's out. The mm. match is over. Oh, okay, you're going to roll him onto his back so he can make his comeback. That's silly. No, don't don't have don't have wrestlers pretend they're knocked out because if because surely the match should be over by then. Yeah, that's that's very true. But I suppose moving on to sort of like main roster, and we had. Um... Two matches involving uh, European talent. We had, obviously, uh, Sheamus beating Matt Riddle for the US title and then Drew Galloway coming up short in his match against Bobby Lashley for the for the heavyweight title. And Sheamus seems to be having, um, you know, I didn't believe this until I saw it with my own eyes because I was never a big Sheamus fan. I always found him quite plodding and boring. But um, he's had quite the renaissance um, in the sort of like past year since he came back. And certainly hearing, you know, John and Way talk him up and uh, Andrew Thompson. And, it, it, you know, he, is, he has been having some decent matches. Yeah, no, he, well, I mean, he was doing quite well with Cesaro in the bar. So, like, mm. he's been sneakily good for a while. Um, um, ju- just kind of, you know, let come in a physical brawler and like leaning into that. And um, I think he's looked better in the ring than Matt Riddle, to be honest, in this match. Mm. Um, uh, one of the convenient things about speaking out is all the kind of like, um, quote unquote, indie darlings that were exposed in that have all came back and performed really badly. So like that kind of separating the art and the artist's question doesn't come up as much as you would think. But I thought Seamus looked more physical. He looked more dominant and probably deserves the victory. And maybe at some point they're prepping for to continue the feud with McIntyre just for the US title this time. And then what were your thoughts on the uh quickly on the on the Drew match? Um weird. I don't understand why you took such a convoluted route to this mania mm. uh match with the Miz having a brief transitional reign, only for McIntyre not to win. Like in that case, why not just have Bobby Lashley be the challenger at Mania? And then he can win the title in a in a in a match that's a bigger deal. Um, I thought a match. Yeah, was... it does seem odd that one, doesn't it? It seems like you know if you are going to crown him and go with him as this sort of like big champion, then why not have him win it at Mania? Um, look, the only the only thing you can think of is that the better than normal TV ratings they got for that for that brief Lashley misfeud is what convinced them to stick with Lashley over uh, McIntyre. 
which you know, I, I personally support. I think Lashley's been good um, on board these past few months. I think the Hurt business has been a really great uh, piece of business, to, pardon the pun, in terms of how they've gotten him and the other members over. Of course, they've now broken it up uh, for reasons <laughs> that no one entirely understands. Um, and I, I I just think Lashley's more of a star than uh, McIntyre. Um, not, not as good a uh, in-ring worker, I, I think be fair to say, but better promo, better look, um, better life story, um, might help reach different audiences for WWE if they promote him right. So yeah, made made sense, and I think it's a bit. It must be frustrating for McIntyre because he's he's kind of had that title for a year. People say he's carried that no carried one on 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 his back, but it's like no, come on. Even I know our Oscar and Bailey and Sasha were doing that throughout mm. the summer. Um, but yeah, you you must it must be you must be if you're McIntyre thinking, what am I now? Because he was such a mid carder before yeah. he put the rocket on him. His run as champion was all behind closed doors. So what happens to him next? And I, I'm not sure I I know the what the answer is. Well, maybe they're thinking cool him back down and build him back up again when they're having full stadiums and arena crowds in. I'm not sure, but Or um... they just put the title on him at Backlash. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I I've I've just never been able. I think I've not been able to predict any of since mm. SummerSlam. I have failed every time I've tried to predict what happens in McIntyre title match because I thought he was going to lose to Orton. Then the one he, he lost to Orton, I thought he was going to win, um, and I thought he was going to win at, at, at WrestleMania. So I'm not sure Vince knows what the hell he's doing with McIntyre no, making it up as he goes along. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. but. Um... I suppose moving away from WWE and, uh, I mean, people say what a difference a year makes, what a difference a year and a half makes in this case, because, uh, you know, we had the small matter of uh, Will Ospreay beating Kota Ibushi for the IWGP heavyweight title, becoming the first British champion. I mean, just before we get into that match, um, thoughts on the new belt, Will? It's <laughs> hideous, isn't mm. it? I mean, I, I I didn't like it when the Divas had it um, a few <laughs> years ago. I I, I am sad that uh, Gado uh, didn't have uh, the guts to go with a spinner belt, but this is uh, this is a good consolation. You know, he's 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 going the extra mile to get himself fired. Yeah, I mean, I did mention there about, you know, what a difference year and a half makes because this would easily be opening any show, you know, podcast that we did and, you know, we'd all be raving about it. But following sort of like, you know, Will Ospreay, you know, his past year and a half and sort of like New Japan cooling down quite a lot. I mean, for me, it was a it was a good match against Debushi. I don't think they do bring good things out in each other, but I think from watching this match and the other matches they've had together, I don't think they are the best opponents for each other, but still a pretty good match. But it just goes to show, Will, doesn't it? How sort of like, in terms of sort of like a lot of British, British wrestling fans' eyes, how uh, Will Ospreay sort of like dropped down the pecking order in, in terms of who they're willing to support. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wrote about this and I was just like, you know, you go back to February of last year and uh, n- not yourself, Martin, you can get the day off work, but so many of us were there celebrating Osprey winning the British heavyweight title, going absolutely crazy. And there's 
there's a tenth of the reaction, less even less than that, of the joy for him winning the world title, and um, which is just uh, just incredible. And it and it's not just due to speaking out. Obviously, speaking out the fallout of the of uh, of what happened with Pollyanna play a big part. He's just not as good as he was last February. The the heel persona sucks. Uh, my colleagues over at PW Torch, uh, Rich Vaughn um, and Alan Farrell and Sean Radenkin uh, did a very good job going into like minute detail about why his uh, his new persona is so cringy, and it, and his matches haven't been as good as as they were before um, lockdown and speaking out, and so you just add it all together, um, and it, it just feels very flat sad moment um not helped by the fact that osprey seems to be working through his anger issues um by using using his promos to troll people who are upset at him and it's just like you're just hurting yourself because there, there are people who are really really angry at you but there's a much bigger middle who are just disappointed and want to put it past them and you are making that impossible yeah i suppose especially with um you know that was fairly on the nose, weren't it? The angle they had previous to the match with, you know, when he knew he was getting the title shot against Debushi, you know, with a with B Priestley. Oh yeah, no, like just, just a misogynistic angle. Let's 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 not let's not beat around it. You know, he's going to motivate. You know, he's going to fridge his own girlfriend to motivate himself. It makes absolutely no sense. You know, it's 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 and it's it's sadly of a pattern with Osprey of these very odd attitudes and behaviors he has to women and he was doing it after he won the title talking about how he was going to lead stardom into a new era and support their locker room for them to become better and it's like it's nothing to do with you you know your missus doesn't even work there now what are you talking about um in terms of the match i thought it was fine um i didn't think it was particularly great um i i i i think like you i'm not sure they have the most chemistry in the world I also think they it felt they were going a bit slower than they should to so they they would have the energy to go fast at the end. Um the the end bit was great. The flying knee Osprey hits in Ibushi was amazing. Uh one of the best finishing um one of the best finishing uh, stretches you'll see. But the rest of it was just it's just it's just content really. It was just like we've got to do this rather uninspired 25-minute match until we get to the fun stuff we've worked out at the end. Mm. I suppose, yeah, people have been critical that New Japan main events are like that, you know, and I've been for quite a while, you know, sort of like nothing for 20 minutes and then pick up sort of like the last 10 minutes. But um, I suppose he is—he has got matches on, you know, coming up against um, Okada and Shingo. And, uh, you, know, sh- you know, despite everything else, you know, they should be good matches. Yeah, and and to be fair to Osprey, he does look a lot better. Like he looked in quite rough shape uh, around the time of the first Epic Encounter shows for Pro and the um, and the G One. But you know, he seems to have lost a bit of weight. He seems more put together, um, and so hopefully he'll be able to do something um, special in those two matches. Obviously, the Okada match is back in the Tokyo Dome. One would assume that's when he drops the title, um, because that's the way Ghetto usually books. Um, but who knows? You know, maybe New Japan will surprise us. They probably won't, though. 
So we're sort of coming up on, on time here, but obviously huge thanks for you uh, joining me on the show this week. Any sort of like last things you wanted to touch on? I mean, um, obviously we don't usually talk about sports outside of wrestling, but um, have we got the big uh, Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua uh, fight? Is that maybe happening this this year sometime? Well, that's a rumour. I mean, it's one of these things where I, I, I will believe it when I see it because I get very... I think it's very sketchy when you start to see that a big match is reliant on um you know the Saudis or somewhere else in the Middle East kicking the money in because mm. those things usually don't um usually don't pan out um you know Ed, Eddie Hearn last week said it was coming um so we'll see if he makes good on that this week I've got to say I've got I've got my doubts you know obviously the Fury Wilder fight underperformed on pay-per-view. Um, the promoters of that took a bath to a certain extent due to how big the guarantees were. You know, he, um, Eddie Hearn, sorry, he, he's never keen to get his big star fighters up against the one he thinks can beat them, particularly if they're, um, they're already marketable. Um, so we, we'll see. It'd be great if it can happen, but I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I suppose, you know, money does talk and they are going to go to the highest bidder, but it, it would be a shame if sort of like all the restrictions do end up, uh, you know, being removed and we can do whatever we want over the summer that they don't, you know, have a big sort of like Wembley match for this. I mean, you know, surely that's going to mainly rely on ticket sales and, you know, it might hurt the pay-per-views depending on what time it is over in America and Canada and places like that. But yeah, it would be a, a shame if they don't have it at a, a Wembley stadium. Yeah, I mean... Wembley or Vegas, like I like, I don't think I would mind if it's in like a big American pay per view. You know, the heavyweight title going back, um, going back to, going back to Vegas, I think would be a, a cool moment, um, be, because it helped. You know, it's not just a pay per view buy; you you'll earn more money from ticket sales, hopefully, in mm. Vegas. As crazy as that sounds, <laughs> um, but from the way Hearn's talking about Hearn, Hearn's only going to do it if he gets the Saudi money, which makes me think it's not going to happen because it's really, really difficult to get the Saudis to pay for things. So, um, yeah, we'll be interested to see. I certainly love to, uh, to see that match as I'm sure a lot of people will be, but, um, before we head out of here, Will, um, any plugs, uh, what's been going on on, you know, on the torch show and, you know, with your writing and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, most recent torch show was, um, was my interview with, um, Alex, uh, Davies Jones. Uh, so after you've heard Martin's interview, you can also listen to mine if you want to, um, and then I've started to do some wrestling writing on my Substack, which is it could be said.substack.com. A uh, free Substack. Um, the most recent uh, one was the Will, was a three thousand word article on Will Osprey and where his uh, status in New Japan is and his and his winning the title. And by the time this is up, or shortly after this is up, there should be a big article on the um, on the All Party Parliamentary Group. Um, to report into wrestling as well, um, which should be very interesting because for once I've actually done a bit of reporting and I've actually gone out and spoken to people and I've even got quotes. So you know, I'm not just saying what I think for once. But there'll be plenty. <laughs> there'll be plenty of me saying what I think too. Don't worry. Yeah, I've, I've no doubt. But um, yeah, of course, Benno will be back next month uh, after he's rested up, and uh, me and Andrew, Andrew Thompson, will be back with. Um, 
with our next show. Uh, we'll be talking Beyond the Mat, the really famous documentary, and we'll have a very special guest for that one, and that'll be on the last Thursday of the month. And uh, the British Wrestling Experience will be back in its usual time of uh, the second Thursday of, of next month. So uh, there's that to look forward to. And thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll Martin, catch you next time. Just one quick question. Is it true that you delayed the British Wrestling Report, uh, sorry, Wrestling Experience, um, um, out of sympathy for Prince Philip? Was it part of the wider? <laughs> was it part of the wider TV being postponed due to the death of the uh, Queen's husband? As someone who uh, hasn't cut the cable and still uh, watches a lot, uh, a fair amount of TV, you know, when I'm watching eating my tea and stuff, I was absolutely infuriated at the BBC having wall-to-wall coverage of Prince Philip. So no, definitely not for that. That decision was made well ahead of time of uh, the passing of Prince Philip. <laughs> <laughs> And on that bombshell, I guess, uh, you know, last thing to say is, you know, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you next month.